passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. It's great to have you at Crosswinds. It's good to have you this summer. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here. And this summer, we've been working our way through the Ten Commandments. And uh, actually, before... Before we get into the Ten Commandments, because this is the last commandment of the Ten, I should let you know what we're about ready to launch into for the rest of the summer. And that is we're going to study the book of Habakkuk. We subtitled that study, uh, Habakkuk, When God Doesn't Make Sense. Has anybody ever had those situations in life where uh, you don't know what God is up to, the world is falling apart around you, and like, God, this doesn't make any sense. Anybody been there? Okay, if your hand isn't up, Sometime in your life, it will be up, because there's plenty of times where God doesn't make sense. And, and Habak- Yeah, there you go. And Habakkuk is one of those least preached books in the Old Testament, so we're excited to study it. Now, we're going to do this a little differently. It's a four-week series. Pastor Jordan and I are going to split it up. Uh, during the first two weeks, Pastor Jordan from our Spencer campus will be covering both campuses. And uh, I'll be taking a little staycation with my family so we can uh, get some little rest and stuff like that. By the way, just some of you know that I'm also going to have a surgery during that time. I don't have a tricep in this arm. I have a bicep because I tore one of my triceps off. So Tuesday I go in for surgery and they're going to try and reattach my tricep. So when I come back, I'm going to look a little funny. So that's what I'm doing for my staycation. And then the next two weeks of the series... uh, I'll be preaching for Pastor Jordan, and he's going to be home. And what he's doing is his wife should be giving birth to their third child during that time. So I'm telling him, uh, please don't drive Crystal down any bumpy roads right now, because that'll mess up our well-laid-out plans. But you know how it is with ladies giving birth. Sometimes they come early, and if you find me preaching in the next two weeks, you know why. Because uh, that little child came early, and I told him, Jordan, I'll be ready to pitch it if you need me there. So you can be home to be with your wife and and your children. Well, this morning we're finishing up the last of the Ten Commandments. And uh, we're going to look at a special commandment. A commandment that is going to be a little different from the other ones. And the way I'd like to launch into this series is I'd like to ask you to close your eyes for a few minutes. Don't worry, no one's going to steal your wallet. Close your eyes and just think what, tell, think what comes to mind when I ask you these questions. You guys ready? All eyes closed. What comes to mind when I say this? If you could have any car, what would you want? If you could live in any house on the lakes, whose would it be? If you could have the mental abilities and the wisdom of somebody else, whose mental abilities would you like to have? If you could have the the physique and the strength of somebody else, who would you like to be? Here comes a tough one. If you could be married to anybody in the world... Who would you like to be married to? All right, that ends the questions. You can open your eyes. Now, what came to mind are those things that you are coveting about. 
those things that other people have that you would just long to have. And I, some of you would say, nothing came to my mind, and we have a command for you. That's called lying, right? <laughs> Everybody has those things that we would love to have, and we, and we would love to just think about. And this 10th commandment talks about coveting. So take out your outlines. We're going to read the commandment, and then we're going to go ahead and study it. So here's the commandment. It's Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or his BMW, or anything else that is your neighbor's. Just want to make sure you're listening. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to study this commandment. Let's look at, first of all, what does it mean to covet? Then we're going to look at why God says we shouldn't covet. Then we're going to look at how coveting works so it leads us to sin. And finally, we'll just look at how do we beat this uh, constant tendency we have to covet our neighbor's stuff. So, first of all, what does it mean to covet? The Hebrew word for covet is actually simply the Hebrew word for desire. It's the Hebrew word to take pleasure in something. Now, when we use the English word covet, that automatically has a negative connotation to it. But this word in Hebrew does not necessarily have a negative connotation to it. In fact, the Hebrew word for covet is sometimes used in a positive way. Here's some examples. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 3. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, same Hebrew word there, I sat in his shadow. I mean, this is just a young lady who's deeply in love with a young man, and she can't wait to be around him. She takes pleasure in being in his presence. Nothing wrong with that. That's a good delight. It's a good desire. Or in Psalm 19, 9 through 10, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired, same Hebrew word there, are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Psalmist says, God's word, this book is extremely desirable. It's something that we should take great pleasure in. It's better than fine gold in your hand or sweet money in, or honey in your mouth. God's word is worth desiring. And I point out that this Hebrew word for desire can be used in a positive sense because some people, when they come to this commandment, what they think is that God is telling us we shouldn't have desires for other things or we shouldn't have desires for good things. That's not true. That's Buddhism. Buddhism is the religion that teaches you to kill your desires. Christianity says we should have desires. And it's good to have good desires. This commandment limits us and says we shouldn't be desiring things that are off limits or things that God has not intended for us. And this commandment is saying we should be careful of wrong desires. 
To show you an example, let's go to point two. The Hebrew word for covet can also be used to speak of sinful desires. Now, we just saw in Song of Solomon how this young woman in the Song of Solomon had a great desire to be with the man she loved, and it was a good thing. But here is the same word used in a different fashion. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. That woman who is a prostitute, that woman who is another man's wife, she's off limits. You should not be delighting in or enjoying those desires. So in the 10th commandment, when it talks about not coveting, it's telling us to be careful of desires that we can develop for things that are off limits. Now, let me give you two com uh, definitions of what this commandment is essentially saying. I'm going to give you a long one, which is more complete, and a short one that is more tweetable. So all you Twitter people, you won't be able to get the long one probably in your Twitter account, but you can get the short one in your Twitter account. So here it is. The long one is, coveting is refusing to be content with the good gifts God provided for my life. It is fixating on what God says is off limits or fixating on what God has provided for someone else instead of being grateful for what God has provided for me. I'll read it again. Coveting is refusing to be content with the good gifts God provided for my life it's fixating on what God says is off limits or fixating on what God has provided for someone else instead of gratefulness for what God has provided for me. The short version is this. Coveting is wanting what I want instead of wanting what God wants for me. Now, coveting can show up in a variety of different ways. For instance, instead of being content with the spouse that God has provided for you, you can start to covet the spouse that God has provided for somebody else. Or you can covet a woman who is completely off limits or a man that is completely off limits. That's coveting. Coveting can be a spouse. It can be a house. Instead of being content with the house that God has provided for you, we can start to covet the house that God has provided for our neighbor because we want a house like our neighbor because it's bigger. It's better. It's nicer. So instead of gratitude in our heart for what God gave us, we want what he gave to somebody else instead. Have you ever coveted a car? Instead of being grateful for the car that starts, it actually does get you to work. Even though it's older and may be rusty, we start to covet the new car the nicer car, the other car that somebody else has. And God says, no, we shouldn't be doing that. It's killing the gratitude in our heart. By the way, coveting does not just have to be for physical things. It can be for non-material things as well. Maybe you're in a situation where you and somebody else are up for a promotion in a job. And it's going back and forth between the two of you and you're neck and neck. And at the last minute, your boss decides to promote your coworker instead of you. And they get the race. They get the honor. And you know how that you have that little twinge of jealousy inside, a little twinge of anger when you're with them because they were promoted instead of you? That's coveting. You're wanting what God has provided for them instead of being grateful for what God has provided for 
you. Sometimes coveting can happen in relationships. You ever had the one where you are with a girlfriend and you have your roommates together? I haven't had this one as a girl, but obviously. But you're with your roommate and both of you are tired of being single. And all of a sudden, your, your roommate, she, she meets Mr. Wright and the relationship goes incredibly well. And you can tell because she comes home and she's just walking like a foot off the ground because of thankfulness and joy. And then she gets engaged. She can't wait to tell you all the exciting things that's happening in her relationship. And you're single and you still haven't found the right person. And all of a sudden, you start to get a little snarky a little bit jealous and envy because you're coveting what God gave to your roommates rather than being grateful for all the things that God has given to you. See, coveting shows up in all kinds of areas of life. By the way, this 10th commandment is different. It's different from the other commandments. Let me give you some ways it's different. Number one, this commandment starts with internal thoughts, not external actions. If you've noticed, the previous commandments started with external things and then worked their way down to internal things. For instance, one commandment was, we shall not murder. Another was, we shall not commit adultery. Then Jesus, he helps to tease that out and says, by the way, it's not just about murder on the outside that God was concerned about. It was about hatred in our heart on the inside. It's not just about adultery that God was concerned about. It's about lust that God was concerned about. So the other commandments work from the outside in. This commandment starts in the heart and it stays in the heart. But it's an extremely, extremely important commandment. You must understand that God cares what we think about. He cares what we dream about. God cares about what we use as mental floss to run through our mind in our free time. Are we using that free time to covet what other people have? To dream about things we should never have? Or is that free time a time of gratitude to God and his goodness for all that he has provided. This commandment can be broken between our two ears. In fact, that's where it stays broken. The interesting part about this commandment is we can break this commandment and nobody else in this entire room would know it. We could be breaking this commandment right now in a big way and nobody else would have a clue. But it's such an important commandment because what we think about in our mind will determine how we live in our life. Our fantasies always become our realities. There's no way to disconnect those. In fact, this is not just an Old Testament thing. This is the New Testament thing. Paul talks about the importance of reigning in our thought life. And bring it in obedience to Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And then he says, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Our thought life should be honoring to Jesus. 
So the first thing that makes this command different is it's all about an internal thought life. The second thing is this commandment is unprecedented in other moral codes. And this is uh, a point I want to make to maybe the more educated and who have gone to college. You go to college, and what they'll say is, you know, there are other ancient moral codes in the world. And what Moses did is he borrowed from other ancient moral codes and compiled them together to make the Ten Commandments. And that's just not true. See, the other ancient moral codes all deal with crime, things you shouldn't do in society. But the Ten Commandments deal with sin. In other words, there are things we can do in our mind that are sinful, but they're not criminal. That's why you find this commandment in the Ten Commandments. Because it's ultimately all, these commandments are about how we think. God cares about that. So we've looked at what this commandment means. This commandment means we shouldn't fixate our thoughts on things that are off limits or things that God has provided for our neighbor. We should focus on gratitude for what God has given to us. Now let's look at why. Why does God tell us to avoid coveting? First point, real important. Covening is where other sins begin. It's not where they end, but it's where they always begin. So let's go to the beginning and look at right in the Garden of Eden. We find Eve in the Garden of Eden, and Satan comes along, and he tempts Eve, and we can find the same word there. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired, there it is, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. Uh, They can eat from any tree they want. There's one tree that's off limits. It's the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. And Satan comes along and he says, Eve, you know, if you ate from that tree, you would know the difference between good and evil. You would have knowledge that God has that you don't have. And she starts to think about that in her mind. She starts to ponder that and desire that. She wants what is off limits. Now, she didn't just, after uh, Satan tempted her, instantly reach out and grab the fruit. There was this time where she chewed on it in her mind and rolled it over and thought about it. How good would it be to be like God? How good would it be to know the difference between good and evil? And what she did is she built herself up in it by coveting. And then she committed the sin of taking the apple. You see, coveting is where sins begin. It's not where sin ends. That's why it's such an important commandment here. Take, for instance, David and Bathsheba. You know how that worked. David saw Bathsheba bathing on a roof, and he saw her. What he should have done is instantly turned away from that, but he didn't turn away. He saw her. And he kept looking at her. And then he started dreaming. What would it be like to touch her? What would it be like 
to have another man's wife. Doesn't belong to him, shouldn't be dreaming about it. But he starts with this fantasy in his mind, which then moves into the reality of his life and he commits adultery. The point is that coveting may seem like a relatively minor sin. Nobody else knows about it. Nobody else thinks about it. We do it all the time. But it is the spark that ignites the fire of sin in our life. That's why our thought life matters. And we shouldn't be fixating on things that are off limits, according to God, or fixating on things that God has provided for others instead of what God has provided for us. Number two, coveting leads us away from the kingdom of God. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that's an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Coveting is so serious that Paul says that a coveter, a perpetual coveter, is not part of God's kingdom. What they are is they're an idolater. They're worshiping a man-made thing instead of our risen Lord and Savior. Now, how does this work? What came to mind was Christmas time when I was a kid. Did you guys ever have a toy you really, really wanted for Christmas? A toy you just had to have for Christmas, and if your parents didn't have it under the tree, it would be a bad Christmas? Well, for me, it was electronic football. I remember telling my parents, I really want electronic football. I can't be happy without electronic football. And, you know, I dreamed about it. I thought about it. I orbited all my life around electronic football. <laughs> and by the way, uh, it was there Christmas morning. But by Christmas afternoon, I was bored because I learned how to beat it. And I could score whenever I wanted. And I sort of learned that these things that are become our idols, they never satisfy. You see, you build them up in your mind to think they're going to provide you such happiness, such joy. If you could just obtain them and just get them because you worship them and you love them and you get them and they fall short. And then what do you do? I got to find something else. Maybe I can eat electronic basketball. And off you go. Covening after another idol, which once again, when you get it, does not satisfy this can be, a, once again, much more than material things. It can be immaterial things. Maybe uh, you're somebody who's in your 20s, and you're tired of being in your 20s. You're in your 30s, and you're tired of being in your 30s, and you're single. And it seems like all of your friends are married. All of your friends have moved on to that next stage of life, and they have kids. And you say, I just can't be happy unless I'm married. You're a lady who says, I just need a boy in my life. I have to have a boy in my life. I need a boy in my life. Or a guy who says, I have to have a girl in my life. I can't be satisfied apart from that. And you know what happens? You finally get a boyfriend or you get a girlfriend. And you discover they're just sinful human beings, just like you. The happiness that you so desperately wanted it's there, but it's not what you thought it was because you had made an idol 
of your wishes, an idol of your longing. In fact, you discover that a relationship is not easy. A relationship is a lot of hard work and sacrifice. Amen? Yeah, exactly. So coveting, it leads us away from the kingdom of God because we make things into idols, things that won't satisfy. Number three, coveting, God says that we shouldn't do it because it leads us into debt. Who has found themselves in debt because they bought something they desperately wanted because other people had it? And so you needed it. You wanted it. So you went into debt to get it. And by the way, none of us are immune to this. We all succumb to the power of the glossy poster. We all succumb to the power of the glossy magazine that comes into our mailbox every, every weekday. We're under the power of that constant ads that are in front of us on the internet and those spam emails that we keep hitting unsubscribe to, but somehow they keep finding new ways to send us more. What are they trying to get you to do? To covet. This is what other people have. Your life can look like this. So you'll desire it, you'll want it, and you'll buy it. And Jesus says this. He's just so good. Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Preach it, Jesus. Isn't that good? Life is not about our stuff. You see, the way this used to work is in the olden days, uh, going shopping was like going to the auto parts store. You know what it's like when you go to the auto parts store, like the auto zone place? You go in there and most of the parts are behind the counter. You go up to the guy at the counter and you're like, hey, I need a new radiator hose. He goes, okay, I'll be right back. He goes in the back. You can hear him pulling things around. He comes up and he's like, uh, I have two. I got the cheap one and the good one. Which one do you want to buy? And you make your decision and you go home. And your shopping was driven by your needs. But people realize you don't sell as much stuff that way. So they came up with something called the department store. And what they do is now they put everything out. They put everything under lights. They make it all nice and, and, and shiny and neat. And you can touch it. You can see it. And you go into the department store and you're like, I didn't even know this existed. This is wonderful. Like 10 minutes ago, I didn't... Uh, I didn't even know about it. Now I can't even survive without it. I have to buy it. And he, marketers realized that uh, the problem with that is when you came to the department store, you came with money in your hand and you're going to go buy the things you need. But now you see stuff that you want, but you don't have enough money. So what they did is they invented something called the credit card. Now what you can do is you can buy something you didn't plan to buy and go in short-term debt to get it. You see how this all works? And then came the internet and Amazon. And now it's like every time you go to buy something, and by the way, here's 12 other things that other people usually buy at the same time. Just a couple suggestions for you. Add to your cart while you have a chance. And the idea is that we start to covet all these things and start to think that our life does consist in the abundance of our possessions. And all I have to say to you is this. I have yet to see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. 
Trust me, you're not taking it with you. As Jesus said, one's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. Be so careful about being covetous and trying to keep up with the Joneses. Another reason that uh, this commandment exists is that coveting, by the way, it leads to broken relationships. I don't know if you realize that. It destroys relationships. comes out of James. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet, there you go, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. At its core, most relationship breakdowns deal with coveting. Let me start on a national level and then move into a personal level. You remember the first Gulf War? Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Remember that, guys? Now, I always wondered, why in the world would he invade Kuwait? What did they do? You start to do some research and you find out that Kuwait was his neighbor. Kuwait was extremely wealthy. Kuwait was defenseless. Saddam Hussein was seriously in debt to Kuwait. Um, They have money. I don't have enough money. I can go steal it. I can take it. I can murder to get it. Wait a minute, James, isn't that what you said? That was the source of an international relationship breakdown. Coveting, trying to get their money. Let me look at this from an interpersonal sense. Maybe you've seen these groups. They're uh, newly married groups where couples that are newly married get together. And over time, they meet. And slowly, uh, it sounds like one couple all of a sudden, will they'll get pregnant. And they'll make an announcement and say, by the way, we're pregnant. And then somebody else in the group, oh, we're pregnant as well. And a few months later, another person. And then it, time goes on. After a while, it sort of gets obvious that maybe there's a... Uh, one or two couples in the group that are having trouble conceiving. What happens to the relationships in that group? Do they start to break down? Do all of a sudden you start to find those who are with child and those who were without child start to split? And it's really sort of hard for them to have one another over each other's houses because I'm coveting what you have. What God has provided for you, but God hasn't provided it for me. So rather being filled with gratitude for what God has given them, rather being filled with a trust and saying, God, in the right time, in the right way, you will provide, there's envy. There's jealousy. It's all because of coveting. This also happens on social media. Now, this probably never happens to you. It just happens to me. You ever had those situations in February in Iowa where it's negative 40 and it's cold and you start looking on your social media account and find that your friends have gone to a tropical paradise and they're darkly tanned and you look at your skin and you're whiter than a penguin? And you know that there is no chance in your financial world that you are going to be going to a tropical paradise for one month in February on your income. 
And your friends come home and they're like, oh, let me tell you, it was wonderful on the beach, put our toes in the sand, and you go, oh, do you have sunburn? Good to see ya. Where is that coming from? Coveting. Instead of being grateful for what God has provided for them, this coveting of what God has not provided for you. We should be grateful in whatever situation we find ourselves. Look what the scriptures say we should do in those situations. Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Your friends get a chance to go to a tropical paradise. I am really happy for you. In all honesty and genuineness, I am. That God has provided that for you. God has provided us all of us individually with other good gifts. And we can thank him for those. But don't be jealous. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Number five, coveting, actually it comes from pride many times. Let's face it, God doesn't bless each of us the same. To some, he's given a fair amount of financial gifts. To others, he's given a lot of um, intellectual gifts. Sometimes God opens opportunities for some people that he just doesn't seem to open for other people. That's all part of God's sovereignty and his providence. But what happens is we see somebody else advancing. We see somebody else getting things that we'd like. And we sit there and say, well, I deserve that too. I should be doing what they're doing. And then so in pride, because we think we deserve those things, we try to advance ourselves into those things, oftentimes going in debt to get those things. And the proper response is humility. It's like, you know, I rejoice that God has given you that, but God has not opened those doors in my life. That's because he wants me right here, right now, and I'm okay with that. I'm not going to covet what God has done for you. I'm going to be content with what God is doing in me. I'm not going to be prideful. Let's look at the third major point. How? How does coveting lead us into sin? And what I want to do with this is I want to just briefly analyze how coveting works mentally in our lives. And then I want to show you an example that should be uh, memorable to show you how foolish this can be. Analysis of coveting comes from James chapter 1, 14 through 15. But each person... But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. If you're taking notes, circle those words. Lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full-blown, gives birth to death. James is using some ancient fishing terms. Lured and enticed. The way this works is that you throw a lure into the water and the fish looks at it and goes, it's a lure. It has hooks in the bottom. Do you think I'm stupid? But then what you do is you start, you know, pulling the line and making it shake a little bit, giving it some action. And the longer the fish looks at that lure, because of his own inner desires, he says, man... That looks pretty good. Ooh, that would be such a good meal. You know, I, I could probably bite it, and I don't think the hooks will get me. 
And he slowly starts to talk himself into biting that lure. He talks himself into believing that bait is much better than when he first saw it. And once he's finally lured and enticed himself in his inner desires through his coveting to have it, he bites it, puts himself on the line, and ends up in your pan for dinner. And it works in the exact same way for you and me. We may see something that our neighbor has or something that is forbidden and the instant we see it, we're like, oh, that's enticing, but I'm not really seriously considering that. And we have a choice to make in that moment. Will we turn away from those things? Will we turn away from that person? Or will we start to think about it like the fish? Roll it over in our minds. Imagine how nice it would be to have the same things that they have. Imagine how good it would be to be married to the person that he's married to. And the more we do that, we slowly talk ourselves into biting it. And sin moves from an internal covetous desire to an external action. Let me give you an example that I find sort of funny, but actually sort of serious about how this takes place. It comes from the Old Testament. It's the story of Ahab and Naboth. Maybe you've read this before. Ahab was the king of Samaria. Has everything he ever wanted, except he noticed outside of his palace was a really nice vineyard, just, just right outside, producing great grapes. He started to think about it. That little vineyard, I could turn that into a vegetable garden. And imagine that. Dinner every night would come with a fresh salad picked from right outside my window. He thought about it. He dreamed about it. He could taste those tomatoes, the lettuce, the cucumbers, the fresh carrots that just were pulled off the vine. And he looked into that vineyard and discovered, well, that vineyard was owned by Naboth, the Jezreelites. Ahab thought about it some more, and finally he tried to make Naboth an offer. And here was his offer. He says, you know, I'll buy that vineyard from you, or I'll trade with you for another vineyard. But Naboth, without even really taking time to think about it, completely refused. Now, why didn't Naboth take the opportunity to make some extra money on the king who was so desperate to have his little piece of real estate? Here's why. Naboth knew his Bible. And the Bible says this about the, the lands in ancient Israel. In Numbers 36, verse 7, the inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another. For every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. In other words, even if Naboth wanted to sell the family farm, biblically he's not allowed to sell the family farm. Why did Ahab even make this offer? He knew it was wrong. But remember, he had been coveting it, thinking about it, even though he knew it was forbidden. Now it gets funny. The Bible tells us that after Naboth turned him down, mighty King Ahab went to his bedroom. He laid on his bed, 
looked at the wall and refused to eat his dinner. Pouted like he was a five-year-old child. All because he couldn't have a little tiny vineyard next to his house. He's the king. He has just about everything else there is. Now it gets interesting. Ahab's wife, uh, Jezebel, saw that as an opportunity. And she took and she hired two unscrupulous men who said that uh, Naboth had blasphemed. They took Naboth outside and they stoned him to death. She went to her husband and said, there, now you can have your vineyard. You can turn it into a vegetable garden, just like you want it. Nahab went to his vineyard. And Elijah the prophet met him there. And Elijah said, you know, in the same place that the dogs licked up Naboth's blood, the dogs are going to lick up your blood. And not just your blood, but the blood of your very, of your wife as well. And I tell you this story because I want you to think about this progression. Here is a king who has God promised to take his life and the life of his wife. Here is a king and his wife that turned to murder. Why did they do that? All because he wanted a silly little vineyard and he wanted to turn into a vegetable garden that he coveted and just had to have. Folks, innocent coveting is where sin begins, but it's not where sin ends. When you see people that have gone deep into sinful life and practices, if you could roll the tape back, you'll always find it starts by entertaining a little bit of covetous desire and refusing to snuff it out, wanting what is forbidden or refusing to be satisfied unless you have your neighbor's stuff. Now, let me just move into some applications. What does God want us to do besides covet? Here's what he wants us to do. He wants us to replace coveting with contentment. We're to be people who are content with where we are and who God has made us to be. I'll try and run through these quickly. Number one, remember that if I need something to accomplish God's will for my life, God will always provide it. This is the doctrine of providence. If God needs you to be smarter to accomplish his will, he'll make you smarter. If God needs you to have more money to accomplish his will for your life today, he will give you more money. If God needs you to be in a different situation in life to accomplish his will for you today, he will bring you there. If he hasn't brought you there, it's because you don't need to be there. And you can turn and say, you know, I can be content. Because God promises to provide everything I need every day so I can accomplish his will for my life. I can be content. The second thing I want to point out is this. Remembering, that my undeserved, remembering my undeserved eternity through Jesus replaces coveting with contentment. Psalm 73, Asaph writes the psalm. Asaph was an ancient worship leader. Asaph was a guy who probably didn't seem to have everything, but he was just covetousness. Covetous of these rich, fat people. Why do they seem to have everything and I seem to have nothing? I love the way he writes about this. Very picturesque. 
For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. Pretty good description, isn't it? Like, God, these guys are downright evil and they get away with everything. And yet I'm struggling in life. And then as Asaph continues the psalm, he writes this. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. I realized that all of a sudden, the only good things they have are in this life and they have an eternity of punishment in the next life. But the scriptures tell us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, that as Christians, we are literally the most blessed beings in the entire universe. For all of eternity, there will be nothing more blessed in all of creation than the sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, we may not have everything we want in this life, but we're blessed beyond our imagination in the next life. It's better to be a poor man in the street who knows Jesus than to be a billionaire who doesn't. The poor man in the street has greater riches. It's better to be a cripple who is stuck in bed who knows Jesus than to be an Olympic gold medalist without him. If you have Jesus, I don't care what anybody else has in this life. We have so much more. And that changed our covetousness to contentment, doesn't it? Puts it all in perspective. I'm going to cover the one more point and then we'll wrap it up. It's this. Number three, remember that Jesus will give me the strength to handle the trials of prosperity and the trials of poverty. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, Paul says. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then he says this famous verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Most people think it's like a weightlifting verse. You know, I can bench anything. <laughs> That's not what Paul says. Paul says that if you're poor, there are certain trials that go with it. Certain temptations that are easy to succumb to, like envy and jealousy. But by the way, if you're rich, there's also temptations that go along with being rich. Like pride and arrogance. He says, you know... God makes some people rich. He makes some people poor. Riches and poverty each have their own temptation to go with them. The only way to make it through them is through Jesus Christ, who keeps us from the, the temptations of poverty and the temptations of riches and brings us through. As God's people, we are to be placards into the world, men and women of contentment, 
in a world filled with people of covetous desires. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to ask forgiveness because we know that many times we are very covetous of other people's stuff, of other people's possessions, and other people's things. We ask that you would help us to be men and women of contentment, knowing that you love us, you promise to provide for us every single thing we need to accomplish your will each day. And many times you're so good you provide more than we need to accomplish your will. Father, we also know that with each temptation of trials, or excuse me, the temptation of riches and the temptations of poverty, each one has their trials and each one has their difficulties. I thank you, Jesus, that you are the one who can steer us safely through both of them. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.